Histories of Science in Africa, a podcast supported by the Center for Science and Society at Columbia University. Our guest today is Gufu Oba. He is a professor at the Noor-Agrig Department of International Environment and Development Studies at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences. His work explores the natural sciences, pastoralism, and environmental history. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you? Hi. Nice to meet you. Well, it's a pleasure. So are you in Oslo? No, I am on holidays. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Mm. And you're in, are you in Nairobi, you said? No, I am further to the north of Nairobi in a place called Isiolo. Okay. Mm. Very nice. Yes. So first, can you talk to us about how this book fits in with your previous works and your intellectual journey thus far? All right. I have actually four other books, including one which I am completing right now. And this is the fourth book that we are discussing. I have worked on pastoral societies, mainly rangeland, grazing systems by mainly African societies for many years, about 30 years to be exact. And I come also from this background. So my interest has always been to try to link the natural sciences, the social sciences and historical studies. The main reason is that when you are doing natural sciences, unless you have long-term data series, you have only understanding of short spells of time between seasons or a couple of years, and therefore you do not have a long-term understanding of the system. It is, however, also important that from a sociological point of view to have some ethnographic data as a background, and that ethnographic data helps you to connect the natural science with the social background on how societies use their environment, the indigenous knowledge systems, and uh, this has been really my focus for a long period of time. So, in a way, my studies have varied across various subjects, from real ecology, hard ecology, to social sciences, to environmental history, and to anthropology, where I deal with the pastoral studies. So this has been my interest, and I think this is reflected also in my working background. I worked for UNESCO, Man and the Biosphere, 14 years on pioneering projects in Northern Kenya, the region where I am in now, called Integrated Project on Arid Lands. This project mainly focused on the issues of land degradation and desertification. And that is how the whole idea of environmental crisis came up. With regards to that, I have also done some long-term series of data where we analyzed different theories and tested different theories using long-term historical data, that is ecological data. That gives us a glimpse of decadal differences, sometimes two or three decade differences on what happened to the environment. And one thing that became very clear 
is the high variability of African environment to the extent that the conclusion you come to in one year cannot represent the next year. So you have high variability going on all the time and that events that occur within African context has to be explained within this variability. So I was rather interested in this particular book. And since I have much of my publications are in ecology, if you look at my bibliography and so on, then my interest was to try to understand and say, okay, what is the historical basis of this discussion on an African environmental crisis? Now, the point is, if you were to go back for Africa, there is a time limit, so to say, from the time when recordings and reporting began. This is the late 19th century. Of course, there are different parts of Africa, like uh, in Egypt and Alexandria. African societies have had libraries for millennia. But in this part of Africa, which I'm talking about, historical records that have been reported are very recent. Recent to the extent that these are late 19th century. Or the farthest you could go is the late 17th century, if you were to include even regions like Ethiopia and so on. So I wanted to look at this and say, okay, if I were to organize this historical information along a timeline using event history occurrences and put them on some kind of pedestal or, or, or kind of um, chronological order, because these studies were conducted at different periods of time, obviously, and by different people. Therefore, they are not asking the same question or getting the same answers. But nevertheless, there's a possibility that there's a relationship between what one generation of scientists asks to the next generation. And I recognize that there are common theories which were used in reference to environmental crisis in Africa. And much of these environmental crisis theories were actually located within global society, global scientific society, as opposed to having developed within the context of African situation. So what we are saying is that we are borrowing the ideas from the African environment, I mean, from European, for example, or American examples, and using those same examples and assuming that the same situation had occurred in Africa, and therefore making conclusion using those theories. And those theories are very influential. So this has really been my um, interest for studying this. And um, so I am hopeful that we will go along with this. And in writing this book, therefore, um, this is a series of books. Now the next book is actually linked close to this, but more regional, more local, more local. And um, so the question that I want to ask is, what are the origin of the ideas of African environmental crisis? Who originated these ideas? Of course, the issue of science, use of science for development and so on, has been done also by others. And I am sure you have, um, you have uh, Helen Tillis' book. I don't know if you can be able to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Africa, this book, the angle this book takes and mine takes are different. Um, whereas she's Eurocentric, that is focusing on the performance 
of the European science on African continent, mainly to critique that science in the context of African understanding of uh, environmental use. So you would find different, but the two books could actually be excellently read to complement some of the questions that I see you guys are asking also. So the question is, what are the origin of these ideas of African environment, environmental crisis? We see that this is globally located, not locally. So applying global theories to local questions, local land use questions, for example. And is this appropriate? Could be, it is appropriate, of course. Science is universal and therefore why not apply it? But we need to actually qualify this particular approach because every environment is unique. What is happening in Europe, in the US, depending on which part of the US you come from. I was in US, for example, in University of Arizona, Tucson. That's where I got my master's degree in range management, 1980s. And that's a dry land. It's equivalent to where I am now, which is also dry, but it's slightly wetter than Arizona. And so if you come from a dry land like where I am now, or you come from Wyoming, there are two different places altogether, environmental, ecologically, in other words. So ecological conditions that apply to humid environments and those ones that apply to drier environments are different. Although you might use the same theories, but the same theory in the context of the actual environment that takes. So I think that is, uh, in an artificial, um, the kind of um, questions that interested me in doing this book. If I could ask, is it the case that there's an irony in that you, you're very clear and meticulous about how the hypothesis of environmental crisis in Africa specifically is coming out of the sort of late 19th century and then into the 20th century imperial scientific enterprise. But then if you actually use some of those natural science methods, whether it's from historical ecology or perhaps limnology, paleonology, those natural sciences, they actually perhaps contradict that hypothesis to some extent that they show that past African environmental human use was quite resilient in, in a lot of instances. So I was wondering, would you agree that there is some sort of irony um, in that the natural scientific methods can perhaps inform that there's a, a bit of a, a lie to this myth and, and that there's sort of an irony at the heart of this? Yes, uh, actually, that is the case. And that is what the book tries uh, mainly to try to kind of, rather than anticipating that it is a myth, the book attempts to make evidences on the basis of scientific information provided by colonial researchers, for example, empire researchers using the scientific elsewhere and then apply to African situation. We'll come to this later in the book, as you would see that African environment actually has remained very for a very long time, and I agree with you. And that um, in some of the studies which I have done, for example, just to go back to some work on African 
changes, climate change adaptation in Africa are historical ecology. We use historical ecology as a framework to analyze impact of climate from the beginning of the Holocene, the winter Holocene, that is 12,000 years before present to now. And I utilized information system from archaeology based on the actual archaeological work and then linguistic history and so on, and distribution of populations over time, particularly looking at the pastoral societies, how they migrated to the regions of the Sahelian region into the Horn of Africa, for example, what it triggered did. And the evidence shows that the environment in Africa has been very variable, and therefore it has also shown high resilience. Actually, the present book, which I'm working on, is management of resilience. In, uh, north, in, the, in northern, northeastern Africa. So it kind of fits. You mentioned in the book change over time and meanings of development and, and understandings of what that is. So can you expand a little bit more on that and the ways that these shifts in meaning of development have influenced perceptions of the African environmental crisis and the forms that interventions have taken? We can simply use the, this sketch that we have. I have it on the figure here. Now, if, of course, the idea of development is not new. It is something which has been developed and it's, that originated also from the West. The goals of development from imperial point of view was different from local people's point of view. Development for an empire like the British Empire was to be able to market it. So as I have shown you, I have shown in the book, the figure, for example, figure number one, then you can actually organize historical events, as I mentioned before, and organize it chronologically on actually what happened. Is development and science, were they going together or they were different? Actually, I do show that there's quite a little linkage between research, scientific research, and development. But ideally, the colonial science assumes that it is the imperial science was the an answer to development questions that are to be taken in African But But the way we see is that actually development takes place on trial basis, and then research comes later. And also, funding the way it is now is only for a short period of time. There is no research which takes the lifespan of a development. So the two systems actually go side by side. And as I do show in the figure there, this is a, just a framework for discussing the book. You would see that there is a particular period when there was a peak, and that is after the Second World War, that you get a peak in investment in terms of development and also in terms of research. But the two are not necessarily linked. Uh, there's a lag between research and and uh, development. Great, thanks. Yes. And as a follow-up to that, can you talk about the different kinds of science, so agricultural, social, environmental, and the roles that these kind of sub-disciplines have played in the development project over time? So their varying importance, things like that. Yeah, we could look at that. Now, the central focus of the colonial empire, the empire in East Africa, for example, for which there were the British on one side and then the Germans on the other until 
1916, when Tanganyika, after 1916, that is after First World War, the, the, the German colony was taken over by the British. So that is when it became British Empire, but otherwise Tanganyika, or Tanganyika has always been a German colony. Now, the focus of the two colonies, um, that is the, the German and the British colonies, were more or less the same. One African environment was seen as a source of production, where the production in terms of farming, farming was really essential. Not only that, but in some parts of Africa, East Africa, the, the aim was actually to settle European populations, to kind of make a show of development in terms of human, uh, European investment uh, in terms of agriculture, for example, or production, large-scale production, but supported by European technology and European science. Now, what that European science and European settlement did was to displace African populations. So the best grazing lands were taken for African uh, European ranchers, particularly in Kenya, not in Uganda, or Tanzania is less important, but in Kenya, the Europeans took ranching and the ranchers took the best grazing land. They also took the best farming land. And the populations that used to live in those areas were kind of displaced in marginal areas. So, because the aim was for raw production, raw material production, on economic scale, large scale, whereas African production was subsistence. This was based on a small scale production meant to meet the need, immediate needs of the families who are farming. And for the pastoral societies, they were occupying much more marginal environments, more arid environments where they remain highly mobile, moving from one area to the other. And the empire itself, in order for them to do, to kind of regulate movements of livestock and the people on the premises that people are keeping too many animals, and this is also informed by some of the global scientific theories and social theories, therefore divided up the grazing lands in ethnic territories so that each ethnic group is kept within its own borders. Those who trespassed across the borders were fined and, and punished very severely. So the, the, the two systems of use were not actually synchronic, that they were not similar, they were very different. So you find African systems on one side being very antagonistic to the European systems of land use, and the European system of land use forcing Africans to kind of comply with the rules and regulations. Thank you. Can I ask, looking from a bird's eye view as you do here, the shift from the colonial era in the mid 20th century to the post-independence, post-colonial era, would you say that this is a time of continuities between the colonial and the post-colonial regimes and how they approach pastoralists, how they envision pastoralists, perhaps as part of the state or not as part of the state? Are they sort of seen as a, a problem that still needs to be developed as the nation, the new nation is, is going forward? And are similar 
reliances on imperial science, do those continue through to the, the post-colonial era? Yes, precisely. Uh, there was continuity. And that is for different reason. Not that what was done in the past was correct. But however, there were two major reasons for the continuity. The first was the newly independent African uh, countries lacked the funding. They lacked funding for development, and they also lacked trained scientific staff to continue with the research. So what you had is that it is really part of the, the former empire or the colonial that continue to provide funding. And when they provide funding, for example, pastoral development, the model of pastoral development is like those parts of the US, for example, the Texas graduate system what they call the four, four by four, that is the rotational grazing by Texas ranchers. So the same model was set here in, in Kenya among uh, Maasai farmers, for example. Uh, these were part of the earliest experiments with some of these big ideas or European ideas in the systems of society. And the others, as I mentioned before, they already occupy marginal environments, and therefore the environment is not suitable for grazing. I mean, you can understand the rationale of this, that where, since the rainfall is very patchy, and especially distributed both temporarily and especially, you would find that the area which is allocated for grazing in a particular season might not receive the rains. But another area where grazing was prevented, is the one that receives the rates. So the dilemma is for the, the European officer or the African officer after independence, keep the people within the uh, dry environment when there is rain elsewhere or allow the pastoral. Now, what happened to the, uh, after African independence of Kenya and Uganda and Tanzania was they didn't have the the strong control that the European or the British, for example, administrators had in controlling farming and pastoral system before. So they kind of relaxed the control that the pastoralists would go whenever they want. But then the discussion of environmental crisis and overgrazing and you know going past carrying capacity and all this has been the same language is being used, in other words. So just to sum up, first, the independent African countries did not have funds to develop, to fund development projects on large scale. And these are normally funded by FAO, UNESCO, USID, and different European uh, funding for a long period of time. And the model that was used, that one which was used during the past colonial period. So one of the things that we've been thinking about on this podcast is kind of expert knowledge and its role in understandings of the continent in a variety of scientific and medical contexts. And you talk in the latter part of your book about administrative science and expert knowledge being valued over scientific knowledge and development. And we've talked a little bit about the parallels in, in development in enthusiasm for development in scientific research. So can you talk a little bit more about tensions among various development actors that are trying to intervene in the development space? 
the administrators of development during the colonial period and during post-colonial period wanted solution, immediate solution. They wanted to see solution to soil environment, which was a problem identified during the colonial period, but going over to the post-independence period. They wanted to see solutions immediately on questions of overgrazing of the rangelands and therefore coastal degradation. That is what the administrators wanted to see. But the science had no capacity to do this. And remember, most of the scientific studies were done on small plots in such stations and not in the larger countryside. People are expanding now, but during that period, the technology was limited. So studies were done on stations, and then the results were to be transferred to bigger areas. And often because you are using different scales of science and development, the two did not go together very well. And this was, this was part of the problem. Thank you. So the next question that I was hoping to ask is, have there been, I guess, from the era of, let's say, the 70s forward, if we can call it an era of structural adjustment or the neoliberal period, have you seen attempts on a wide scale to try to integrate indigenous ecological knowledge systems in development projects? Has there been any success in doing so? And have you seen any success stories of integrating perhaps natural science with ecological knowledge systems, whether it's under the, the name of development or? Yeah, I, I think that's a very, very appropriate and very good question. We can divide these in terms of timelines. From the time when people realize the mistake that has been done and many more scientific work try to support these integrated methods is from the 1990s to the present. But earlier on, that was not the case. But I want to make this qualification a little bit, and I want to give you my own background in this particular case. To you at the beginning, that I participated in one of the pioneering research programs in Africa, the UNESCO Man and the Biosphere. The philosophy of UNESCO and the Man and the Biosphere was to integrate the environment and human societies. Previously, studies were done independently, where individuals would do ecological work, but they were not concerned with social sciences. And therefore, they left out the people. But increasingly, UNESCO, Man at the Biosphere, emphasized the natural linkage between natural sciences and social sciences. And in this particular pilot project, which was to address the problem of land degradation or desertification in northern Kenya, what was assigned to us, this was probably one of the largest research programs ever done in any one country in Africa. Uh, with huge funding, 
We had everything from planes to, to vehicles. We were actually among the first to use even modern communication systems like there were no emails those days. But nevertheless, the idea was to start the societies in the system as they existed. So if you want to investigate livestock diseases, you go with a harder. A harder is contracted to provide treatment hands. Then UNESCO would buy chemos, which are used for control, not receiving the treatment, and make the comparison of the two. So this was the beginning of the idea of UNESCO and man, man and the bus there, which began the whole question of the interlinkages, the integration of uh, societies, ecosystems, and then the beginning of use of indigenous knowledge. Indigenous knowledge is probably critical to understanding how these systems operate and if the uh, empire is actually this, have been actually more successful, but they were kind of brushed off and ignored. And it was even suggested that you see any person, any scientist who even tended to show that he had uh, relied on this uh, indigenous knowledge system was dismissed as not being a good scientist. So it is from the beginning of 1980s that major studies on pastoral societies began. There was a major conference organized in Nairobi and by various people. There were many anthropologists, mostly anthropologists, trying to find a way of integrating natural and social sciences. So the information is actually vast. There's a lot of information since the 1980s to the present. And in my book and the synthesis epilogue, which I call the epilogue, is just a summary of some of the trials of research that has been going on. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, sure. So I have one more question to think a little bit about discourses of environmental crisis. And can you speak a little bit about the ways that this, this idea has informed conversations around food production and security? We've mentioned that a little bit, but also ideas about biodiversity and conservation and population concerns. So larger discourses that are in the development sphere, as well as conversations more broadly about Africa and Africa's future. Yeah, this is probably not the only study, but if you have seen a couple of very interesting studies done also in the Sahel of West Africa, uh, actually showed this question of integration of social studies and ecological studies, geographical studies, and at a geographical scale using different kinds of um, uh, monitoring uh, tools to find out that um, one particular study showed this. You see in West Africa, just between the, the, the tropical forest, there are mangroves, trees of all kinds. And the idea was that different theories were raised. One theory was that the remnants, after you know the local societies have cleared the rest of the forest, and therefore this group of forests left behind were kind of um, the original part of the forest. But actually, these others showed uh, that actually it is these society themselves who promoted biodiversity conservation of this forest system. It is not the original 
It is not patchworks or parts of, of the original forest, but the society conserved this forest and so on. And this is quite interesting because originally, I mean, and I'm sure are working on this very interesting work. And uh, look at some of our biographies, some of this done by my former PhD students. And we kind of developed this further. And the main reason for this is, of course, we have had certain advantages in this. And we are not the only ones, of course, there are many others, even from Western scholars are doing this. But the advantage we had was we know the society. So we understand this indigenous knowledge itself. We didn't actually go to the field to learn it, although we went to the field, yes. But we had a better understanding. We are both ecologists trained in ecology, but also learned this indigenous knowledge, and we are born in it. So it, it, it was very natural for us to link these two uh, together. Just to give you an example, there is one article which I did with one of my PhD students on one of these ancient wells published in Geographical History, I think 2014, or I'm not quite sure which, which year. It's about that. It is use of indigenous system of reconstructing time series over five centuries. This is interesting. That paper, I think, might be very helpful for both of you if you look at it. Thank you. Yeah, that would be great. I had a follow-up to the question I just asked. So the idea of crisis that you're kind of interrogating here as it relates to the environment, could you speak a bit to the way that this idea of an environmental crisis extends to discourses of, I'm interested in particular discourses of population crises that were prevalent um, in the post-colonial period and have remained today. We were just reading the other day about the UN projections for population growth and how framing population as a crisis might relate to environment and land use and things like that. Yes, there's population growth. But I think the kind of hypothesis which was set before was not necessarily the case. But if we take the present, yes, what happened is this, that the spatial distribution of populations have changed. Uh, in the recent years, that there is greater concentration of populations where more facilities are provided, near towns, near urban centers where there are more hospitals, more schools, and so on, or in areas which are more fertile and therefore people cultivate. So there is not have any buffer area into which the population disperses. So as land is grabbed for one reason or the other, a constraining situation, which is not necessarily created by population per se, but artificially done so that the population now becomes a problem, although the population in reality, in real terms or numbers, is not a problem compared to the past. But what happens is that the resource base on which the population relies has diminished. Some of the studies that we have done, for example, and the book I'm writing on now has that case, where the land was communally used up to 1980s, 1990s, and for some political reason, people, the, the former nomads settled down and now divided up the land to the extent that that area has already been carved out, partitioned, fragmented. It's a very serious problem. If you ask me whether the population has increased, yes, to a certain extent, naturally. 
take place and less the population. But in relative terms, it is the area which is really small, but it is on that small area on which there is greater pressure. So if that population was actually to be relieved and taken elsewhere and the resources are provided elsewhere, there would be more uh, relief. But then the way we are going is that there is going to be concentration of populations going on. Towns, many towns are being built, concentration of populations. Great, thank you. Okay, so that's all the questions that we had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add to our discussion? Any questions you have for us? Yeah, well, I, I don't think I have questions, but I'm actually very grateful that you provided me with this opportunity and that you are reading my book and that I am sure as part of your exercise, you can review it and uh, publish it uh, review somewhere. And then in that case, people would know it. And I'm glad that you actually found the book and you are able to read it. I'm sure you have made an opinion about it and, and, and so on. So mine is to wish you good luck. I think it's so pretty, so beautiful doing PhD. And for me, it was a long time ago, but I like PhD students. It's really where the science is born. You are the ones who produce, who have ideas, not the older generation. We just maybe synthesize and repackage some of the old ideas. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for agreeing to come on. We were excited. We found you from doing a library catalog search about history of science in Africa. So we were excited to come across your work and we were excited that you, that you agreed to come on for the podcast. Thank you for you thinking about this. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.